Thank you to everyone that has tuned in thus far. The hustle and grind continues as we're now into season two of 52 Weeks of Hustle. I've had such a great time sitting down with industry leaders. Thank you to the leaders and for all the listeners and your continued support. In addition, thank you for everyone that has supported the book, Hustle Your Way to Success in Sports Sales, a playbook to being elite in the sports business industry. It's available on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and audio versions. Be sure to check out 52weeksofhustle.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hustle. I'm Travis Apple. I'll be your host of this podcast. I've been fortunate to spend my entire career in the sports sales industry, and I wanted the opportunity to give back, to give back to those individuals that want to get in this business, or for those individuals that are in this business that want to continue to excel at an elite level. For those of you who know me, hustle has always been important, hence the name. Each week, I'm going to have the opportunity to sit down with industry professionals to talk about their career path, what it takes to be successful, and ultimately a few key takeaways for you to apply to your everyday. Without further ado, our guest this week. Imagine growing up with a dad that played and worked in the NBA and having five siblings that all played sports. Competitiveness would need to be in your blood, and our next guest has certainly taken the competitive nature and has had a tremendous career. I'm excited to have our next guest, Mika White-Morris, Chief Revenue Officer of Tappet. Mika, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Travis. I'm excited to be here and excited to share more and give back in any way that I can, whether that be entry-level executives or those more mature in their career. This is always a good thing to do, and I'm excited to share the stage with you. That's certainly, and, and certainly appreciate it. That's why we do these things is to give back and certainly appreciate your time. I know it's a busy schedule, so we'll dive right in and really, you know, very excited to have you. So let's start at the beginning. You grow up in Middleton, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. You're in the middle of six kids, four of which, including yourself, had college athletic scholarships. So we talked about competitiveness there. Your dad played for the Celtics, had his number retired, and then worked for the team. Was sports just always something that was inevitable is going to happen? Yeah, you know, we were the kind of house that, you know, most most kids back then, you grow up and you know, you come downstairs for breakfast and the news is on TV. In our house, it was always Sports Center. Um, so you were always in tuned and plugged into what was happening in the world of sports, um, you know, across leagues, across across industries. Um, you're always at a game. I, my wonderful parents spent countless hours at AU games and youth soccer fields and youth basketball um, facilities, et cetera, driving us around all over New England for, for those experiences. And so, you know, we are a competitive family by nature. Um, I can remember one time we were on a family vacation. This wasn't too long ago. And God bless, we walked by a volleyball court <laughs> on the sand. And when I tell you this was the most competitive, like there was a crowd eventually. I mean, there was a ref came out of nowhere. <laughs> there is, I mean, people blocking, people spiking, serving, setting. I mean, like we, I mean, if you're not willing to dive in and literally dive in, um, it's not going to work for you and my family. And so it was always that way growing up. And I think it inspired sort of a lot of what we all do today. Um, that competitive spirit. No, absolutely. Well, you take that competitive spirit and end up, you're going to be a collegiate athlete. You end up going to the university of Kansas on a track and field scholarship, studying journalism, you know, so first on the sports end, you ran the events of 400 meters, 800 meters and long jump in our, in our previous conversations, you're still running an average of 20 miles a week uh, on top of everything else you're doing. So now I know many runners say that and they enjoy doing it because it gives them the ability to break away and really think and put the life and world in perspective. And so why was and is running still so important to you? 
So look, I think, um, you know, track and field is a sport that is, is it's you versus the track. Um, it's not really you versus, you know, the other runners. Um, you know, it, it is in some ways, but it's such a, a mental game, you know, to overcome the physical pain and how taxing it can be to sort of run and push past what you think is possible. And so, you know, it, it was something I enjoyed very much and, and notwithstanding the team environment, you know, I played other team sports, of course, which is fantastic, but there's an individuality in track and field that, that really doesn't exist in, in other sort of more collegiate sports outside of maybe tennis um, or swimming. So for me, um, you know, it's been a wonderful thing to sort of be a part of and grow up in, of course, and compete at that level. Um, but I think now when you say, you know, look, how do you disconnect? How do you unplug? How do you take time, intentional time for yourself to think? And I oftentimes tell executives, if you're always executing, you can't be strategic. You've got to create time in your day to, to lift your head up. Um, because if you're always looking down, you don't see what's coming your, your way. And so part of that time that, that I spend intentionally disconnecting is when I'm outside running. I mean, you're breathing fresh air, you're hearing the birds chirp, you're, you're you know, sort of paying attention to what's happening in, in the community around you. But more importantly, you, you and you're with yourself just thinking about the day ahead, the week ahead, the month ahead, goals and objectives, how you want to get there. You know, some of the best ideas I've come up with have been when I've been out, you know, uh, uh, running. Um, so it's been just such a nice stress relief and such a nice sort of individual moment um, to take some time and really think. You know, the, the logo on 52 Weeks of Hustle is somebody running. Uh, obviously, we talk a lot about hustle. When you go out to run now and you, you're running your four or five, six miles a day, what are you listening to? Oh, wow. Um, so many things. So I used to listen to some pretty, you know, legit um you know, uh, hip hop and R&B and a little neo soul, um, some contemporary alternative rock. I, I listen to it all, but recently I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, a lot of sermons, a lot of, you know, books on tape. I think there's something really interesting about hearing sort of a good message about something heartfelt that can be really inspiring as you're sort of you know, um, taking the time to breathe deep, like I like to sort of say. So it can be a combination of those things. It really depends on where I am in the day. You know, like first thing, if I'm out sort of on a run at 6 a.m., getting into some like real hip hop seems like a little aggressive. <laughs> woken up. So that's a time where I'm more inclined to listen to something a little bit more subdued, like a book on tape or a sermon or something like that. Yep. Um, but if I'm going sort of an afternoon run around two, three, four o'clock in the afternoon where you're trying to inter get your energy up. Um, for the rest of your day, a little, a little something more with a little bit more bounce to it probably yeah. is the route that I take. So it's, it just depends on when I'm running. Nice. Um, yeah. All makes sense. Well, you know, as, as you're finishing up as a Jayhawk and you receive your degree in journalism, your first opportunities out, out of college is with PC Connection, where you're helping create ads for copiers, staplers, and any other business supplies. Was the passion there for that? <laughs> you know, look, I think you know, you don't know what you don't know. And so for me, when I came out of college, you know, I had a degree in strategic communications. I really thought I wanted to do broadcast journalism and, you know, be the next Hannah Storm or, you know, 
Rachel Nichols or Robin Roberts or whoever your favorite sort of sideline reporter is. And I quickly realized that that probably wasn't the right route for me for a number of reasons. And so from then, you know, you sort of say, well, I want to do marketing. Well, what does marketing really mean? I mean, there's so many facets of what that means, but when you're young in your career, it just seems like the right thing to say because you really don't understand what that means. And so right. that's what I did. And PC Connections is a fantastic company. They do and they serve you know, countless um, organizations, both big and small with all of their sort of operational efficiency needs. And so creating you know, sort of ads that go into their sort of what I'll call brochure to the extent that you wanna purchase those kinds of things is really important work. But you, know, you sort of spend your whole life sort of working towards a career and then you wake up one day and you're doing it and it's not exciting. You know, I, and I started to think, can I really wake up and market pencils for the next 40 years? Is that really what this, this, all these years of education are about? And I think you have a, you have a moment in time to be intentional about the career path you choose, because honestly, you don't, you don't really get, you know, once you're in life and you have responsibilities, you don't really get the opportunity to sort of rethink that in its whole form, you know, later on in life. And so to have the ability to do that was was really incredible to make a shift um, and to sort of make that decision so early on in my career, because I don't know that I could have the same latitude today. Right. No, absolutely. And that's to your point, right? You want to make sure you're waking up every morning excited about what you're going to do and having that long term career path. You don't want to be fast forward 20, 25 years. And it's like, I'm just counting down to the days till I retire. Right. Having that passion. And so you go back back to your kind of your upbeat and your family, your dad. Now at the time was working in community relations with the Celtics and he was in Miami golfing with Todd Fleming, who is certainly an industry expert. And that was the break that I think you were really looking for. But then maybe your first time in your life, maybe rejection came. So you care to share that story? Yeah. So um, interesting. And I apologize. Of course, the lawn people come and my dog decides to go ballistic. So if you hear him barking in the background, he is definitely not as vicious as he sounds. But that's just the good um, ambiance. If people are running right, right now, they get it's some, the they get some right. kicking in the next the, gear. It's the work from home yep. um, that, that we all deal with. But so, so I'm, look, I'm at PC Connections and I am expressing to my parents that, you know, like, I don't think this is like the forever career goal for me. And I think I really want to get in sports, but at this time, I only know about broadcast, being an athlete or the things surrounding the athletic piece, coaching, training, et cetera. I don't really know a ton about the business of sports. And so my dad happened to be in Miami, the Celtics were playing the heat and Todd was overseeing and managing their inside sales program. And one thing led to another. And I ended up having, you know, um, uh, an interview, I think it was a phone interview at the time with Todd. And, you know, he, he said, look, you know, if you want to be a part of our inside sales program and really get your foot in the door of sports and really, you know, hustle and grind it out um, and see what you're made of, you know, there's a spot certainly here for you um, at the heat. And, you know, I'm, you know, 21 and moving to Miami and South beach. Like why the hell not? Yeah. Well, I can, what you guys can appreciate is that same year, Shaquille O'Neal gets traded to the heat and they, in the midst of all this and Todd and I sort of agreeing that, yes, this is the route and you know, all of those things, they sell out and they sell out and they do not need to hire an employee, another salesperson because they literally have nothing left. There's nothing left. So Todd, graciously enough, calls me up 
And he's like, listen, I know that, you know, an offer letter has been FedExed because then that's what you did. Um, or faxed or whatever it is right, right. to you. But unfortunately, that- some of our listeners don't know what a fax machine is. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> exactly. But unfortunately, that offer is is null and void considering what we've just experienced with this um, trade. But it, the good news is that I, I have two colleagues that I um, work with, one by the name of Mike Toman, who's now the inside sales manager of the Phoenix Suns, and the other by the name of Mike Andreco, who's the inside sales manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers, that I've called both that would be willing to have a conversation with you about joining either one of those, those teams. And so that was sort of was the next step. And I spoke to both and had a good time with both. And, you know, when I boiled it down, I, I said, well, hell, Todd and Mike and Mike all came from Cleveland. Well, it sounds like Cleveland is the place that's sort of pumping out, you know, talent, um, you know, and so that's probably where I need to go um, to just learn from the best, despite the fact that it's not like, you know, the sexy weather and all of those things. For me, it was about learning and learning from the best. And they had produced some of the best and brightest in the industry. So for me, it was it was a no brainer to, to take my talents to Cleveland <laughs> yeah. um, to learn the business of sports. No, and that's great, Meek. And you're certainly, you know, like anybody that deals with rejection, you have to bounce back. And you're able to bounce back. You have to see certainly made a great impression on on Todd to be able to make those calls, as we've all been on that other side of like, all right, do I want to make the call for this person or not? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you end up going, you start working for the Cavs and ticket sales for LeBron's first year. And now many guests on the podcast, it's typically an easy transition from the individual that loves selling to then ultimately progressing their career. And yours was a little bit different as you didn't necessarily dislike selling but you weren't necessarily the, the most passionate or huge fan of the ticketing world. So what was your mindset every day to then ultimately lead you down the sponsorship path? Yeah. So look, there's two times, two types of sellers in my book. There is the systematic um, sort of seller who plays the numbers game effort out equals effort in calls out equals calls in. And, you know, while they may not have a super high close ratio, maybe they do. Um, but they know that if they make the hundred calls that they'll close at five or 10% and that five or 10% will, will turn into X number of deals closed over the course of a year or a quarter or whatever the case may be. There's also the kind of seller that's a relationship seller. So they are able to, to quickly create rapport, distill and, and unpack relationships, get to the heart of the need develop and build, um, out a solution that makes sense and then use that relationship to unlock other relationships. And I was much more of that kind of seller versus the person who's gonna make the hundred calls and play the numbers game. I'm much more somebody who's gonna make 50 calls but make 50 of the right calls and close the 50 at a much higher percentage versus calling the hundred and closing them at a lower percentage. And so Mm -hmm. when you think about that, sponsorship and partnerships is all about relationship building. You have to develop trust. You have to develop rapport. People have to believe that you really understand their business and that you're providing solutions that can help them achieve their core business goals and objectives. And it is it is a much more art than science because in sponsorship, the package that you build and what it costs can change deal over deal. With tickets, a club seat is a club seat is a club seat. Right. It costs the same. It costs the same for everybody. The amenities are the same and they're the same for everybody. It's just the it's just the sort of difference between two seats or four seats 
and it, you know, a five-year contract or a 10-year contract or whatever lengths are afforded to you, the cost doesn't really change. And so that's really when I leaned in and took a step back and looked at myself as a seller, I really enjoyed sort of the artfulness, the negotiation and the presentations that go along with selling a higher end product. And while it's a longer sales cycle, I mean, you know, you can, you can spend a whole year and only close three to five deals total, but gosh, the reward and the feeling you get from actually getting somebody over the line and pro- providing them something of importance to them is, is an amazing feeling and something that was really resonated with me as a saleswoman. And mind you, even with those three to five year deals, you're still crushing your goal. Oh yeah. You, you're still I mean, hammering it. Yeah. I mean, if you have a goal of a million dollars in new business, I mean, that could be one deal or two deals right. Of, right. in total for a year. So, you know, whereas if you, that same million dollars from a ticketing perspective needs to be, you know, 40, 40, 50 seats. Yep. Um, so it's just a different mentality and a different process. No, absolutely. And you end up taking the sponsorship, you know, and running with it. You end up spending several years with the Cavs, then on to the Oakland Raiders and ultimately the Charlotte Bobcats and leadership, both in that partnership vertical. And so what were some of the key learnings early on in your career, you know, specifically as it relates to sponsorship that you still apply to your everyday? Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that I, I learned pretty early on from the guy who I would give all the credit in the world for, for teaching me sponsorship, his name is Kerry Bubaltz, and he's the, the president of the Golden Knights. And he was my boss. And he always taught me, you never give up exclusivity. Exclusivity is something that has to be at a really, really high level. And I think, you know, when I look back, I mean, we had multiple car partners and several banking partners. There's a way to create exclusivity without giving the category up. And I think oftentimes sponsorship people are, are executives are too inclined to say, okay, well, you're the exclusive beer partner, or you're the exclusive automotive partner, but you can have exclusive domestic, you can have exclusive import, you can have just exclusive, you know, luxury car, exclusive truck, exclu- I mean, there's ways to slice and dice and give up the exclusivity without giving up the category. And so I think when I, when I think about sort of my style um, and how to get and maximize the categories, it's, if we're going to talk about exclusive, it's at, you know, five to 10 X what the category would be alone because you're handcuffing me from the ability to stretch um, and, and stretch for what could be 10 years. Um, so it has to really make a lot of sense and you've got to really be thoughtful about the carve outs. And also I think you got to bring a little bit of the ticket selling chops to, to partnerships while yes, there's an art to it. And while yes, there's a relationship to it, you know, it's also effort in equals effort out. The more things you have going in the pipe, the more inclined you have the more inclination you'll have to, to, to close and not only just close what you need to, to get your goal, but to over deliver against that goal. So those are things that I really kind of brought into that space and things that I fundamentally believe in today. Um, You know, while I'm in tech or attractions or anything, uh, anything else that I've sold, it's really the same sort of mentality and thought process. You know, and to your point in the exclusivity competition is never a bad thing either. You know, and having different brands and being able to customize and have that consultant mindset. So absolutely. And and to your point into, you know, the entertainment and the attractions world, like next up after your leadership roles there with multiple different franchises, you know, in the, in the NBA and the NFL, you get into the entertainment space as you take on the director of sponsorship sales for live nation. So how did that role differ from sports and sponsorship that you've somewhat used to? 
So what was interesting for me is, you know, I always, you know, people talk about their entertainment executives and that sort of thing, but let's be clear, most people specialize in one thing. They're either, they're in sports or they're in music or they're in attractions or they're in college. And there's very few people who've had experience in all of them and can really speak to how people spend their discretionary dollars and what the differences are in terms of the landscape and how people access those brands. And so for me, the opportunity to sort of see, does the business of music have the same sort of energy, is the same style of selling, is the same focus and strategy applicable in that environment? And the, the, the large answer is, is yes. Right. Now, there's massive caveats to it. There's different ways to think about it. There is, things aren't as systematic. You know, the MBA, if you're selling MBA, you've got 41, 42 home games and you've got three or four preseason and it's the same every year. Yep. Well, when you're in music, Kenny Chesney may be touring this year. He may not be next May year. not the next, yeah. So when you're selling, you're selling you're selling into someone's propensity to enjoy music, not their love of Kenny Chesney, where sports, you're selling their love of the Cavaliers, not their sort of interest in basketball. Yep. And so it's a very different conversation and why somebody chooses to buy. Um, but what we used to always say is music is like the Super Bowl, right? Like Madonna tours every 10 years. So when she's on tour and if you're a fan, there is nothing you won't do or a price you won't pay to be at that show because guess what? She's not going to have another one for 10 years. Yeah, you're not going to see it again. Right, where a basketball game or a football game, yeah, there's they're important and certain matchups are more exciting than others. But guess what? The Lakers are going to play the Clippers again this year and again next year and again the year after that. So, yeah, there's a, a, a way to create that urgency, but it's a much different conversation when you're talking about music. Again, we're here on 52 Weeks of Hustle. The guest today, Mika White-Morris, Chief Revenue Officer of Tappet. So Mika, as you're embarking on a great career in the sponsorship space, you get the opportunity to continue to do that while going back to ticketing as you take on the Vice President of Sales and Marketing role with Legends, specifically working on the One World Observatory project there in New York City. And this also brought you a full circle. Uh, as we've mentioned a couple of names in the past, you were going and, and working for a company that had the likes of Chad Estes, Mike Andreco, Mike Toman, Todd Fleming. So why did that role ultimately make sense for you? Yeah. So it's, it's funny. It was wait one, getting the band all back together. I mean, right. like, you know, we had all, it just came so full circle, which was very interesting, but two, um, it was the opportunity to build something, you know, look, when, when they called me up, Mike specifically and Draco and said, Hey, we've got this opportunity in New York and you know, we, we want you to think about it. And it's in the attraction space, which is sort of a sidestep from everything that you've done. But again, at this point, I'm on this trajectory of really being an entertainment executive. And what piqued my interest was, one, it's the observatory at the top of the World Trade Center. We all remember and know what happened on 9-11. And you get the opportunity to bring that building back online and really see that, that view in the New York skyline again. And you can always go back to a team, but you, you don't get the opportunity to do that and, and start it from the ground up in the ways that I was going to have the chance to do with um, legends at that time. Number two, you know, again, as we talked about, it's 
you know, working with some people I really, you know, respect as industry leaders. But number three, it's to build. Oftentimes when you're hired, the team's in place for the most part, the role has been defined, you're really replacing somebody who's who's in a vacant chair and you're you're able to make you know some differences to how it's been done, but they're marginal at best. You know, you're not gonna reinvent ticket selling. You're not gonna reinvent sponsorship selling and being a director of sponsorship sales. Right. You know, the categories are the categories, the open opportunities are the open opportunities. Likely if you go to a market, they've talked to everybody. So you're really talking at those same people twice or three times or four <laughs> times. And there may be a few new players on the on the horizon, but it isn't sweeping change. This was, it didn't exist. Right. When I got there, there was no walls, there was no experience, there was nothing. And so you're going in saying, what do we want to make this? How do we want to build it? What do we want it to look like? You know, who are the right people to come in and support this? And how do we want to have a conversation globally about what this project really means? And so, you know, you don't really get the opportunities to do that very often in this industry and to do it alongside and with people that you respect, who know you, who believe in your talent and really gave you the first shot you ever had in the industry. And so it was really great to be a part of and to go from, you know, zero dollars and, you know, nothing to $80 million and counting in annual revenue when I left. I mean, that's a, that's an incredible story to get to tell and one most people don't have the opportunity to do. You know, all great reasons for taking that role. And I think the last one, right, is the build that you talked about. And this opportunity with One World Observatory was an interesting one. As you, to your point, you didn't have a ton of insight into the attraction business. There was really no walls, no infrastructure. In addition, you had to work with state and local authorities, the government, and help build this $80 million project. So, you know, looking back at your time there, was there a key meeting that you were a part of that made you think, Wow, this is going to be a really cool project to work on. Well, you know, look, you're, it, it that building had it had global implications um, because everyone remember what happened on 9/11, and we are bold enough as a as a city, New York, and as a country to bring that view and that building back online and put an observatory right at the top um, for all the world to have access to. And so I can remember sitting in a meeting with, you know, NYC and Co, which is which is sort of the the CBB, the 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 group that manages tourism in New York, and it, the head of it um, is an appointed official by the by the mayor and the governor um, of New York, and Durst um, Douglas Durst, who is part of the Durst family, that's a massive real estate development group. Um, in New York, um, leaders of, of obviously the business and legends, um, the New York State Port Authority. And you're sitting there like, these are people who like run the state and the city of New York focused on what we're trying to achieve at this building in this observatory yeah. and what it's going to do to impact people's view of the city. Battery Park, which is the neighborhood that it's in, and what people globally are going to think about it. I mean, when do you get the chance to sit in a room like that and the decisions that you're making having such an impact on, on you know, the viewpoint and vantage point of so many people. And so you don't, you rarely get those moments in your career. And that was certainly a highlight of mine. No, absolutely. And, and from the, the sales and marketing perspective from that project, you know, it's certainly a, a little bit different than the team side. You even mentioned on the Live Nation end where Madonna may come and, and tour every 10 years. 
the One World Observatory ends up bringing in 5 million people a year, but for the most part, they're fairly unique customers and not a ton of repeat business, which, which you don't necessarily see a ton on the team side. So how did the sales and marketing approach differ from maybe when you spent the time on the team side? Yeah, you know, it was really an interesting learning curve and not just for me, for, for the leadership at Legends at the time to sort of recognize that this isn't, there isn't a ton of repeat business, right? Like you can appreciate this. If you and I decide to go to the Empire State Building or to um, the Statue of Liberty this summer, like we're not coming back, like not even again this summer, but but next summer, like we saw it, like when grandma comes to town and she wants to see it, maybe. So you're talking about explaining and introducing the value proposition of the property to new people and new buyers every single year. Like every year I need to find 5 million new people. So how you market it, where you market the the experience, you wanna be a part of someone's, you know, guaranteed day one itinerary when they come to New York. And a lot of the visitors in New York are, are global. Yeah. You got people coming in from China and from France and from Ireland and Spain and Brazil and South America to New York, and it's a trip of a lifetime for them. In a lot of countries, it is a lifetime of savings they've saved to be able to have a New York or American experience. And so they have every piece of what they want to see planned out, and you want to be a part of that plan. And so it, it required us to go to those countries and present our offering to you know um, businesses in Australia and South America and China and India and all over the world to make sure that they understood what we were, they understood how important of a, of a visit ours was, why it was unique and special compared to some others, and that they had to see it when they were in New York. Yep. And so our marketing was global in scope. We had to have a website that was in multiple languages because you've got people right, from all, from all over. World. And then you've got to talk to people in New York who have the propensity to visit. And it was funny, there are times where I get calls from all sorts of stakeholders and they're like, I don't see any advertising for one world. I go, that's good news. If you were to see it and you're a New Yorker, you're not the right demographic. Right. You're the it's wrong demographic. So the fact that we're spending all this money on advertising and you're not seeing any of it is actually really, really good news. It's actually yeah, that means getting- we've we've spent the right dollars. And we spent it with the right channels and the yep. people who have the propensity to buy are getting the message, not you know, the person who has an apartment in Gramercy Park, who's a New Yorker and they're a native New Yorker is not the right demographic for our property. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Mika, you're certainly a great experience. And, and post that, you go on to work with Learfield IMG College for the national sales in that collegiate space and quickly move to ISM Connect, which is your first stop really kind of outside of that traditional space and into that vendor tech space, uh, which was a facial recognition and artificial intelligence. And so what ultimately intrigued you about that space? Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> you start to think in particular when you're in the partnerships world, you know, what would make this easier? You know, we were at this sort of precipice of hard assets like signage and underbelly scoreboard and naming rights of the suite level and all the things that traditional sponsorship sellers sell start to not really be exciting. They weren't, they were no longer things partners wanted to buy. 
um, in, in the traditional sense. They really wanted to connect with the fan in a meaningful way. And so you start to look at how, do you, how can immersive tech be brought into a space to create opportunities that become sellable assets. And for me, it wasn't so much you know, the idea of facial recognition, because I think there are people who buy into that and there are people who that's it's scary. Right. It's the, it's the idea that I could serve an ad to a person who has a higher propensity to buy my solution. I'll give you an example. The, the software, if I walked by, while it doesn't know I'm Mika White Morris, it knows that I'm a black woman, that I'm between the ages of, of 35 and 45. And that I, you know, I'm walking up to the bar. So if I'm walking up to the bar and they've got TV screens and it serves me an ad for Jack Daniels Honey, they know that somebody who would have a propensity to buy that product is on their way to the bar. So it's not distilling me specifically, it's the demographics about who I am. And so as I thought about that as a partnerships person, how can I use that data to inform and horsepower the sponsorships that I've worked my whole career to sell. And so when you start to look outside in, it became really interesting and they were really looking for an entertainment executive and they frankly found it really challenging to find it. Like, again, as I, as I expressed, you could find somebody who knows music or find somebody who knows sports or find somebody who knows attractions or find somebody who knows college, but very few people have worked across all of those. They can say this, how this would work in college, but, it needs to be this way for music because this is how music works. And oh, by the way, it's something completely different if you want to deploy this in an, in an NFL stadium. So I think it was a really interesting four-way into that space and one that has continued to obviously pique my interest for some time because I think there's a real opportunity to sort of support not only the ticket selling efforts, but certainly the sponsorship selling efforts by really smart tech deployment right. within the ecosystem. Yeah. You start tying them all together. You plug in artificial intelligence. It's, you know, somewhat to your point, right? Some people are scared about it. It's like, holy cow, what it is. And it's kind of creepy at times, but it's like, this stuff works. And, you know, after a year there, you, you end up moving on to tap it where you've now been for over a year. So first, what is your elevator pitch for tap it? So tap it is a white label wallet um, solution. So you can liken us to like, an Apple Pay, but instead of it being universally accepted at any venue, our solution is simply accepted at the venues we serve. So instead of seeing, you know, tap it, you'd see Chiefs Pay or Jags Pay or Padres Pay or Cincinnati Reds Pay. And so use the fan, put your card into the solution, any debit, credit card, you know, whatever payment types they accept. It could be PayPal, it could be Bitcoin, it could be whatever the team accepts. And now you're able to pay touchlessly, you know, for anything that you're buying. So if I want to purchase um, a beer or a sweatshirt or tickets for next week or parking, all that can be paid through one single solution. So me, as a customer, it's completely frictionless. It's within the Teams app. I never have to pull out my debit or credit card again. My tipping functionality is already in there live. And I can just pay for what I want. And I can see a real instantaneous record of what I've bought if I got a discount, if I've any of those features, but what the team gets is that data in real time. So they know where Travis Apple's sitting, where he entered the building, that he uses an American Express, that he always buys Michelob Ultra, 
that he buys two youth sweatshirts. So he probably has kids at home. This is his fifth game of the year. And oh, by the way, he always uses Mika season tickets. Now we can market to him with offers that are compelling. So, hey, we know that you haven't been to a concert yet, but we'll give you two for one Michelob Ultras if you want to come to the concert because we know you drink Michelob Ultra. Or, hey, you don't have your own season tickets, but we know this is your fifth game of the year. And Mika, two seats next to her are free here or, or available. Here are all the benefits you'd get if you buy those season tickets. And so, or, hey, we just did a big deal with Anheuser-Busch. We know you drink, you know, Michelob Ultra, but here's a free offer for Bud Light. Um, you know, if you want to try Bud Light on us or whatever the yep. case may be. So now you're able to use that data to really drive incrementally more sales through your business, both ticketing, merchandise and food and beverage. And you can do it in real time. And we all know how data, how important it is, right? To, to nurture your buyers, to understand who's in your building and what they're doing. And, and I think what's unique about Tappet, you know, and you, you brought this up a little bit earlier of like having experience in the Live Nations and the One World Observatory on the team side, you guys can be really used in any brick and mortar stores, casinos, events, games, rodeos, airports, et cetera. And certainly to your point, very interesting technology that tracks anything that a consumer is, is paying with and sending those you know, notifications. But you know, as, as you look at, and we talked to just about the data and the importance of it and who's sitting in the seats and what they like or buying, but you know, from a, from a day to day, what does your day to day look like? Yeah. So, um, so I have a team um, that I manage and I'm supporting them driving, you know, uh, deals and, and architecting the right deals for the partners we serve. I have a, you know, partnership implementation team. So once the deals implement or signed, who's ensuring delivery and, you know, the, the right communications plan, the right, you know, sort of on-site signage to encourage people to use the solution. Um, and then I'm also working on deals myself, you know, having, you know, big conversations with, with leagues and, and brands and, and teams and, um, you know, all sorts of things to sort of continue to sort of lean into our core competency as a business. And while the wallet is the way we deliver it at the core of it, tap, it's a data company. Um, we are about aggregating data for the benefit of the clients we serve you know, the wallet is just the, the, the mechanism by which we gather that data because everybody has to pay for something when you come on onto a property. So I spend uh, most of my time sort of supporting and navigating and negotiating sort of deal terms, um, working with the partners we have to maximize the opportunity and share best practices and, and data, data use cases and case studies, and then supporting my team in the deals that they're working on and ensuring the overall health and success of the business. You talk about a lot about your team, and I think what's unique about your leadership role that you're in now, you have sales leaders reporting to you from all over the world. And so, you know, how many countries and, and ultimately, how do you maintain the consistency with other time zones and with, with other areas of the business and prioritize? Yeah, so Tappet is a global company. In 2019, we operated in, in 20 countries around the world. Um, and this was before I joined the business. And currently, we have sales folks in um, the Middle East and in the UK um, and certainly all over the US and, and more to come. And so, you know, myself in, in conjunction with um, my CEO, you know, we really try to sort of straddle the, the, the time zone world because you have somebody in the Middle East who they're, they're almost exactly 12 hours um, ahead of where I am. So, 
you know, if I'm trying to talk to Steven, it's, you know, 2 a.m. his time where it's 2 p.m. here. So you know, it's a lot of early mornings, which is which yeah. is fine. It's a lot of sometimes, you know, late evenings. Um, but it's we're really in a place where we're, you know, we're at a we're ready to scale such that you have multiple people who are leading the different sort of areas of the the world and folding into one sort of centralized leader because you know as it stands, you know, we're a small but nimble team, but but as you can appreciate, you know, as the, as the business expands and you have more people across the globe, you know, us sort of trying to find a time that works for, you know, somebody in LA and somebody in Dubai and somebody in the UK and then somebody in New York all to get on a call together um, and really strategize becomes increasingly more difficult for sure. No, certainly excited about the, the future of Tappet and, and continuing to, to grow that and you know, Mika, onto the, the staffing and the growing, you've certainly hired a ton of people and have had, you know, helped many people have great careers in this industry. You're also on the board of sports business camps. And so you mentioned this right as we introduced you that you love giving back. Like, why is it always important for you to always give back and help the next best superstars in our industry? Yeah. So, you know, look, you have a f- responsibility, you know, somebody helped you. You know, we can't do this and get where we're at on our own. Um, and if anybody thinks they can, they're, they're sadly mistaken. Somebody somewhere, whether you realize it or not, um, had a good thing to say about you in a room that you weren't in or encouraged you to, to apply for a job that you maybe didn't feel you were qualified for or gave you an opportunity that was beyond what you thought you deserved at that time. And so we have a responsibility to do that for somebody else, in particular, when you're a woman and a person of color. I mean, there's even fewer, you know, of us in this business and certainly fewer of us, you know, trying to sort of navigate the, the sort of tricky landscape of how we encourage and get more people who look like us into this business. And so for me, you know, I, I've always prided myself on if I ever got to a place where I was in a position of influence, that I would use that influence to help support people um, in who are trying to grow a career in sports and lending my time, lending my voice, um, you know, looking at candidates that may be from diverse backgrounds, because I think diversity and inclusion and our ability to have multiple people and diversity doesn't mean, you know, white versus black diversity means I grew up here and you grew up there and we see the world differently um, for various reasons. And we could be the same race or gender but we just happen to grow up very differently. And when you put all those people in the room solving a problem, the solve you get is much richer than it would be if we were all from the same neighborhood, grew up in the same place and all went to the same high school, regardless of what we look like. And so that's something that's really important to me. And I've seen that in my past that when I've had the most diverse people in a room problem solving, the answers we came up with were equally diverse and probably would have never been um, heard had it not been that way. And so if I can influence others and help others get into those, those places, that's something I'm always going to be, um, uh, for and always going to support. Well, on behalf of all of our listeners and certainly everybody in this industry that you've impacted, you know, thank you. We appreciate the support and you know, this has been great, ton of great advice, fun to hear about your journey on both the team and vendor side. And so to close it out, I'd like to put our guests on the hustle hot seat. So you ready for this? Sure. All righty. If you had a superpower, what would it be and why? <laughs> I would probably say to be invisible. You know, right. 
I, I, I want to be able to see and hear what people really say about people, about themselves and really do when the, when the doors are closed and the lights are off. I think the, the hard yards and the real test of a person happen when no one's watching. And so I'd love to be able to see what, what people really do when no one's watching. That is for sure. If you had a boat, what would you name it? Oh, I would name it the Jojo after my late father, for sure. For sure. Without even blinking. Without question. You have your own late night talk show. Who are you inviting as your first guest? Michelle Obama. Of course. She, I, I want to pick that brain. I want to know what it was like for her. I want to understand the struggles she's had and, and, the, and the, the opportunities that she's had and you know, ways that she sees you know, she can impact the world um, for people like her and for all of us, frankly, for kids who are in difficult positions. And I think it'd just be incredible to spend the time. Absolutely. Well, Mika, to close it out, what are your three key takeaways you'd give every listener to be in your shoes one day? Yeah. So um, one, um, I would say you never lose. You either win or you learn. And so, you know, never look at something that doesn't work out as a loss, look at it as, as a learning opportunity. And the alternative is, is that you win. And so that's something I, I really stand by. Um, number two, I'd say, if you are bold enough to raise a problem, you have to be thoughtful of not, enough to have considered a solution. So if you are going to your boss and sort of raising issues, you know, I always think it is, it, it shows a level of character and care that you say, hey, you know, I, I'm having trouble working with Jane. Here's what I think I'm, I'm going to try to do. What do you think? And while the solution may not be what you came up with, the fact that you thought of one says a lot more about you, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a person in business than just dumping a problem on your leader's desk and hoping they can create the world to solve it. Um, and the last thing that I would say is, you know, if you're not failing, you're not trying at some level. And the only thing that I would say is if you're going to fail, fail fast. Yep, so yep. we all have to try things. We all have to stretch ourselves. We all have to go into some areas that are unknown. And sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not. But the difference is you need to see the forest from the trees. And if it's, if it's not working, sunset it and move on don't sort of enlist yourself in the failure and ride it to the end when you see the writing on the wall. No, I love it. Great advice. You know, to your point, you're never losing, you're winning or learning. You've got to be bold. You got to be thoughtful coming up with solutions. And I love it. You know, fail fast, you know, get into that yep. point. Mika, thank you so much. You certainly had a great career an SBJ 40 under 40 winner. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And I certainly appreciate your time and expertise. Ah, thank you, Travis. It's been a pleasure. Again, this is Travis Apple. Thank you for listening to 52 Weeks of Hustle. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram and follow us at 52 Weeks of Hustle. We'll be back next week with another industry leader. Have a great week.